afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening. Welcome to Girls Camp. I'm your host, Haley Rawl, and on today's episode, it's just little old me. I'm doing a solo episode, and I'm actually really excited because I feel like we have so much to catch up on. I've had awesome guests on my most recent episodes and have been talking about more topic-specific things, but I've had a lot of thoughts and feelings that I've been meaning to share and just haven't had the chance to. So we're going to do a little bit of a catch-up, a random smorgasbord of things in my mind, and then we'll get into the topic for today's episode, which is parenthood and post-Mormonism or more specifically, motherhood and post-Mormonism, because I am a mom. My journey to motherhood was quite unconventional, and it overlapped in super significant ways with my faith journey, with my Mormonism, and my post-Mormonism, so I have a lot to share about all of that. I am recording on Sunday morning, April 2nd, so it's General Conference Sunday. If you get triggered by General Conference... I'm sorry. I totally get it. I've been there. I don't really feel that way anymore around general conference. I feel more relieved that I don't have to ingest all the many, many general conference talks and sit through it all. I will say I always crave a cinnamon roll on general conference weekend. I think it's part of our Mormon DNA to have a cinnamon roll for general conference. I haven't got on Instagram yet today, but I'm sure I will see everyone eating their cinnamon rolls. And usually I prepare and I get a gluten-free cinnamon roll because I'm celiac, so I can't have normal ones, but I didn't do that today. I'm kind of bummed. So now I'm going to have to satisfy my cinnamon roll craving ASAP. I hope you get your cinnamon roll, your crepes, whatever you do to honor conference weekend, or if you're just ignoring it or forgot that it happened, that's fantastic too. Okay. First item I want to address I have talked in length about my reservations in starting this podcast, and I've shared that I was really worried to talk openly about Mormonism and talk critically about it because I was scared of hurting people's feelings, offending people, being disrespectful. And to be honest, I would say that fear went away pretty quickly once I started just doing it. But another reservation I had that I haven't shared and that has been a little bit more ongoing for me is the fear of being a post-Mormon person. And what I mean by that is I just didn't want to be identified as like a post-Mormon person. There's nothing wrong with people who that's a really big identity piece for them, whether in real life or on the internet. But I felt really sensitive to that just because, A, I think I was worried about perceptions, obviously, and just being perceived as someone who couldn't let it go or was unwilling to move on, all that sort of thing. But also, I just don't feel like a post-Mormon person. I feel like I have big pieces of post-Mormonism that make up my identity, and I feel totally okay about that, but it's just not like my whole thing. And I hope this is making sense, but it was a really legitimate 
worry for me that I was going to brand myself as just the post-Mormon girl and obviously doing a podcast all about post-Mormonism. I think that there are probably many people who do perceive me that way and I totally get that and I kind of had to just accept that that would be the case, right? That was a risk I was willing to take. But as I've sort of just done the podcast and talked to different guests about it live, as well as had behind the scenes conversations with friends and with Bentley, what I've realized, a number of things, buckle up. (laughs) The first thing I've realized, I think that this podcast, this space is maybe less about post-Mormonism and more about life through the shared lens of the post-Mormon experience. That feels really nice to me because no matter what facet of my life I'm thinking about, whether it's my career or marriage or parenthood or, you know, you name it, whatever it is, there's a little piece of post-Mormonism that affects all of those things. In some areas, it's more prevalent than others. At some times, it's more prevalent than others. But I guess what I'm saying is I inevitably, when I look at my life and when I make decisions and when I think through things that are happening and talk about things that are happening, post-Mormonism is a piece of those things, right? It's not the whole piece, but it's there. And to have this space where all things post-Mormon are on the table because as Maddie and I talked about, Maddie Murphy on her episode, you know, not all spaces is religion just on the table that way because you don't know who's listening or what people want to hear, whatever, whatever. So to have the space where all the post-Mormon stuff is on the table has been really cool because I feel like we can talk about all these different things, but there's obviously the shared post-Mormon lens. You know, I think I'm leaning into that a little bit more here at the beginning of the podcast because I do have a lot to say about various topics and the post-Mormon overlap, but I don't know. I guess I'm kind of curious to see how the space adapts and evolves. I've also had some people ask me, do you want to be talking about Mormonism forever? Kind of implying, are you dredging up these things from the past, dwelling on this negativity, I guess? And It really just hasn't felt like that for me. If anything, it's been cool to reflect on various topics and think through all the ways that Mormonism really has shaped me and shaped my thoughts and feelings. I've found it healthy because I think I thought maybe I was further past some of these things. And even though I feel good and I feel okay, there's still a lot there to think through, to unpack just to talk about. And I found that personally to be a really good thing. I haven't felt like it's dwelling in the past in any bad way for me. And I was talking to a friend about this at my girl's birthday party. And he was saying he and his wife listened together and he was saying, yeah, it's actually really nice because it just opened up more conversation and more realization of that same thing. Like, oh yeah, wow you know, sex, for example, is really colored by our Mormon upbringing. And now as post-Mormons, sometimes maybe we forget that and it can be useful and nice to talk about it. Anyway, I think that part of the reason that people are afraid to talk about post-Mormonism is we're all really eager to 
have moved on and like moved past it and beyond it. And I totally get that. I feel that way as well. But for me, it's something that I think really deserves to be talked about. Again, there's just so much there. It's just really fascinating, if anything. Yeah, I guess I'm just letting you in a little bit on kind of this wrestle I've had around this post-Mormon identity thing and just coming to terms with or having a little bit more peace around the fact that post-Mormonism is a piece of the pie of me. (laughs) It's not the whole pie. It's not the whole thing, but it is a piece of me. And talking about it can be a really good thing and actually a positive thing. And I don't think it has to be so filled with negativity. It can even be neutral to talk about it. It just is a fact or, you know, it's an objective reality that a lot of us lived. I hope any of that made sense, felt a little rambly, but hoping you followed. One other thing I want to talk quickly about. I saw this Jeffrey R. Holland clip on Instagram. And usually when this stuff pops up, I just scroll right on by But right at the top of the video, he says, I want to talk to you who speak of a faith crisis, which piqued my interest. And he went on to say that real faith, Abrahamic faith, as he says, is always in crisis. In order to have faith, there needs to be a crisis, right? And I guess the greater the crisis, the more real the faith. But then he continues on to say the only antidote to a faith crisis is more faith. So he says something along the lines of the more faith, the less crisis. I watched that and just felt so many things come up for me. First of all, I find it really fascinating that the church is continuing to embrace this idea that faith should be so crisis ridden. They're taking the fact that people are having faith crises and they're trying to turn that on its head by saying, oh, you should be having a faith crisis. The crisis is what makes it faith, right? Like that's your opportunity to prove that you're actually faithful. I just do not jive with that at all. I am so happy to not be in crisis. And it's so odd to me that the church is just flat out saying crisis is a part of this And in fact, the bigger the crisis, even the better. I just don't like that. I just can't imagine telling people be in crisis all the time. It feels so damaging to me. And then what felt even more strange is to say in one breath, you need crisis to have faith. But then in the next breath, say the only way to not be in crisis is to be more faithful That's when I felt really tricky because just felt problematic and manipulative to tell people who are having really valid, really real struggles with faith to say, okay, A, the crisis proves that faith is real. You need it to have faith, but you also need to be more faithful. You're doing something wrong. You're not practicing enough faith or being faithful enough. And once you're able to do that, then the crisis will go away. Yeah, I don't know. I really didn't like that. And it was interesting, though, to watch that video where I'm at now personally and imagine the kind of guilt and the kind of dissonance that that would bring up in me when I was having a faith crisis, because that was such a big part of my whole journey 
And why I stayed in the church so long is because I was having this immense crisis and I was feeling uncomfortable and I was feeling unhappy, but I felt like I should be feeling uncomfortable and unhappy. And the only way to push through it was just to keep trying to be faithful. It sucked to remember that because that wasn't fun, but it was also nice to watch that video and just not feel any of that and feel like I could see it more clearly for what it was, which is this sort of desperate attempt to take the faith crises that members are having and turn it against them almost and try and make it their fault. It was nice to not buy into that and see it for what it was, but it also just bums me out for those who are actively in that faith crisis because I think the antidote to a faith crisis is listen to your intuition and follow where it goes. And that's how I've found peace not just continuing back to the source of crisis. All right, a little fun to square up with Mr. Jeffrey R. Holland. What an intense man. If you don't know the video I'm talking about, it's on my Instagram feed on the Girls Camp podcast Instagram. But yeah, man, that guy is really intense. I used to love it when I was a Mormon. I was all about it. I ate it up, but no longer. Okay, how's that for a little catch up? I was working through a lot of that in real time, so thanks for letting me talk it out with you. Let's talk about parenthood. I want to start out trying to tell the tale of my infertility journey and how that all overlapped with my faith journey. It's a long story, so I'm going to sum it up for you. I'll give you the bullet points, broad strokes. I had a sense that it was going to take me a while to get pregnant. That was based on kind of an intuition thing, but also on the fact that Bentley and I were really lazy with our birth control method since we got married. I did not take very well to hormonal birth control, and we just weren't very careful with other methods of birth control. In retrospect, it feels pretty crazy that we were so lax about birth control because I certainly did not want a baby immediately upon being married, but for whatever reason, we were. After a couple years of marriage, I was thinking, you know, I probably should be pregnant by now. It's, I've been having unprotected sex for two years. I talked to Bentley about it and we both were kind of like, yeah, maybe it might take a little longer or some interventions to get pregnant. And at that point, we weren't dying to be pregnant, but we also knew we would be happy to get pregnant at that point, which again, in retrospect, is so wild to me because we absolutely were not ready to have kids at that point. But it was sort of just this weird kind of middle ground. We weren't like wanting, wanting to have kids. But again, we were like, okay, if I got pregnant right now, it would also be fine and good. So we decided to start trying a little bit more actively to get pregnant, but with this idea that it was going to take a long time. We started tracking, kind of slowly got better at like tracking my cycle and trying to time sex and that kind of thing. And we did that for about a year and I still wasn't pregnant. So we went to the OB, I got a bunch of tests done and everything checked out. Everything looked normal. So that's when I started doing actual infertility treatments, which start out really non-invasive and kind of ramp up all the way toward IVF. We took it super slow because again, I knew I wanted a baby. I knew I wanted 
children eventually. So did, so did Bentley, but we just weren't so anxious to have them immediately. We were both just kind of worried, like, can we, how long will it take? Like, what's this going to look like? The further I got into the infertility treatments, that worry got a lot bigger. I started feeling pretty panicked. Like maybe I won't be able to have kids. We weren't getting any answers. I wasn't getting pregnant and we were taking it slow. So it, it lasted quite a while. My infertility became super, super, super challenging. I don't really remember the timeline of everything super well, but there was a good probably year of my life when I was really consumed by it, where I feel like we'd been trying for a long time. I felt super ready to have kids and it just wasn't happening. And we were investing money and time and energy into me getting pregnant. I started to worry, like really, really worry that I would never be able to have children. During this whole time, there was a lot of things happening for me in my faith journey, because this was all happening sort of at the same time that my faith journey was happening. I remember one specific day I was on a run. I thought, I think I started my period that day or I was waiting to start my period. So I think I was maybe a day or something late. So I was thinking like, maybe I'm finally pregnant. Like this might be the time we had maybe just done an IUI, which is like an artificial insemination thing where you have to do shots and the whole thing. And I was on this run and I was thinking about this in context of religion and these messages I was receiving, religious messages from people in my life or from church. And I was thinking, have I learned my lesson yet? Because I had it so ingrained in me that when trials happen, when hard things happen, God is trying to teach us something. I had really internalized that and thought that I had to learn something in order to be ready to be a mom and infertility was God's way of teaching me that, but I just like hadn't learned it yet. And I remember being on a run and I was like jogging down the street and I was thinking that like, have I learned my lesson yet? Like, am I finally ready? It hit me so in such a big way. I had to stop running and I just started sobbing. And I remember thinking, why would God do this to me? This is not a good method of teaching someone something. This doesn't feel like a loving method. And I remember feeling really angry at God and upset and thinking, this is unfair. Other people get to be moms. Teenagers in high school accidentally get pregnant. Why, why is this happening to me? It felt really unfair. And that added element of feeling like God was teaching me something that I just hadn't learned yet was so maddening and upsetting to me. I would say that that line of thinking just kind of grew and grew where I started to feel really at odds with any divine person who would intentionally inflict a trial or a challenge on someone just to teach them a lesson. That's a huge part of the Mormon doctrine, in my opinion, at least how I interpreted it, is that maybe God doesn't do things on purpose to you, but he lets things happen or something in order to help you grow or whatever it may be. I, at a certain point in my infertility journey, I just had to let that idea go and step away from that for the sake of my mental health. And it was a really important thing for me to say, 
God isn't doing this to me. He's not even letting this happen to me. I am experiencing infertility because something's going on in my body. That's genetic. That was, you know, maybe passed down. That happened because things happen, but it's not meant to be, if that makes sense. Feeling like everything's on God's timing or this is meant to be was really damaging for me in that space. And when I had to take a step away from that thinking, it felt really freeing just to look at it as something that happened because of the random order of the universe and it was happening to me and I could choose to make meaning out of it and I could choose to learn and grow from it. But that was more of a personal autonomous choice as opposed to needing to learn something from God or this divine source. So that was obviously a big deal for me on my deconstruction journey because I had to reimagine what a God even looked like or how a God would interact with their people, their children or whatever. And I started to change my mind in really big ways around what that looked like. The other really big thing that was coming up for me was the intense, intense messaging around motherhood and parenthood in general, but motherhood specifically, trying so desperately to become a mom and having reinforced to me at so many turns whenever I went to church and, you know, read any church materials or whatever, it just felt like it was continually reinforced to me that that was my purpose, my ultimate purpose. And I remember thinking, well, I might not be able to do that. I might not be able to have children biologically. My body might not be able to have children. Why would I have this purpose given to me, but not be able to actually do it? Going through infertility for so long just gave me a really, really different perspective and view on motherhood in general. In one way, it made me see how beautiful and amazing motherhood is because I I wanted it so desperately and I was thinking about it and obsessing over it. But another part of me as a coping mechanism, maybe also had to really come to terms with the fact that you can be a wonderful, fulfilled, successful person and have a beautiful, amazing, rich life and not have kids. That might seem obvious to some people, but growing up in the church, that felt like a really radical idea. It was really radical to think that I could be fulfilled and happy without having children and without becoming a mother. I think that was a gift that infertility ultimately gave me because I did eventually, I think, come to that point where I realized I might not be a mom, but I can still be okay. Again, that was just challenging one of the core tenets of Mormon theology, which is how absolutely vital it is to multiply and replenish the earth, to get married and to have children. And I had to challenge that in a big way as well. And I think I'll get into a lot more of that as... I, I read through some of these questions that have been submitted and talk more about how I feel now that I'm a mom. But I think that was really key for me and also just understanding that there's so many different ways to live life and to be happy. And yeah, you know, the church's plan of happiness just no longer felt like the only thing. When you face something so challenging and devastating. And infertility really was that for me. 
it really forces you to look at what you believe and to kind of take inventory of if it's serving you, if it's fitting right, if it's feeling right. My infertility and the the challenge that it was, I just sensed was really being exacerbated by that messaging around motherhood and parenthood and by the messaging of how God teaches people or how he lets trials happen. I had to take a hard look at what I thought and what I believed. And I came out on the other side, just thinking quite differently. I ultimately ended up doing IVF. So in vitro fertilization, where they pull out your eggs, fertilize them outside of you, and then implant them. We implanted two embryos, which are now our two twin babies, Maud and Clementine. They just turned one. And I feel like the timing was really special with having the babies because I had to really learn to trust my intuition outside of getting religious help. We were making big decisions about if we should implant two embryos, having to weigh the pros and the cons and the risks and... There was just a lot of decisions to make towards the end of that process of doing IVF. It was a really good practice in trusting myself, in getting on the same page with Bentley, and doing that outside of relying on trying to get spiritual answers or impressions from an outside party, God, essentially. I feel immensely immensely lucky and grateful that we got pregnant with the girls on our first IVF cycle that's quite rare and I just feel super fortunate that it turned out that way because I was really struggling and it was such a toll on my mental health I remember thinking if I don't get pregnant this time I just don't know what I'm gonna do or how I'm going to be okay I'm so glad I got pregnant My pregnancy was a little bit fraught. I was just really worried. I had a lot of that leftover anxiety. I was constantly worried that something wrong was going to happen. I had a subchorionic hematoma, so I had some bleeding that was scary. And then I ended up getting preeclampsia and gave birth via an emergency C-section at 34 weeks. So the girls were six weeks early and they were healthy, but they did need to be in the NICU on oxygen and feeding tubes for about a month. Now, as I said, they're one. They turned one on Thursday. We had a little fairy birthday party for them yesterday. It's crazy. Just difficult to sum up what motherhood feels like for me. So I think in course of talking through some of these questions, I'll get a little bit more into that. But I really do love being a mom so, so, so much in ways that I didn't know that I could And in ways that I think are different than I imagined motherhood would be growing up, especially in the church. It's been really freeing and liberating to be a mom, but to do it on different terms than I was raised to think were possible, I guess. It's great. It's really hard. It's really great. It's really hard. It's very difficult to describe as many big life things are. So we'll see if I get a little better at describing it than that as we talk through some of these questions. Let's jump into it. Okay, this person says, currently in a mixed faith marriage, my husband is out and I'm on the fence. We are due with our first child at the end of April. And one of the hardest things for me is if I decide to leave the church as well, what things will we teach our children? 
I want them to have an understanding of or belief in God, but don't know how to go about it. Any advice or recommendations? There were a lot of questions along these lines about essentially raising your children with some sort of spiritual, maybe even religious beliefs, but not knowing how to do that outside of the framework of Mormonism. And I think that's an excellent question. I do want to say before this episode, when I was, these questions were coming in, I kind of panicked and literally almost spent the past three days panic reading parenting books for all the stages and spiritual parenting stuff. And I decided that'd be a little bit disingenuous if I pretended that I like had known all that. I don't really know is my point. But what I do know is that there are so, so many resources for you. I mean, I actually was just on Instagram and I follow an account called Uplift Kids and it's run by professionals who are in the child development psychology space, but they also incorporate spirituality into their curriculum and they have a curriculum for teaching children spiritual things. I was reading this post from them And it says, you already hold the wisdom, intelligence, and insight to guide your child into adulthood. By healing and growing yourself, you can remove the barriers that sometimes block you from parenting from your highest self. I really loved that. And that first sentence especially is what I subscribe to, which is you already hold the wisdom, intelligence, and insight to guide your child into adulthood. And I know it's really scary stepping away from the framework of Mormonism and all the answers that Mormonism provides, but I really believe that as a parent, you know your child best, you're insightful, you're intelligent, and when you have questions, there are so many resources you can draw on. So if you're hoping to cultivate a belief in God, for example, like this person asked, There are so many ways that you can do that without relying on Mormonism. That also comes with a lot of other maybe more problematic elements. This account is one of those resources. There's so many books. I mean, I just think about when I had my babies, I knew literally nothing and had to figure out everything as new parents do. I didn't know what to feed them and how much to feed them and when they should be sleeping and what they should be wearing and what temperature their room should be. And I Googled a billion things and I called my mom and I asked my friends who had children at a similar age as me and I read books and that's what I hope to continue to do. I'm so comforted by the fact that there's just so much out there to help you out and you have the capacity to read and learn and filter through and make the decisions that are right for you and for your kids. I really think that. I think that Mormonism really tried to scare us into thinking that we could not do that without it. I think that was strategic to make people feel like you have to stay in order to keep your family intact and your kids safe spiritually and even physically and mentally. And I just don't think that that's true. One other thing I want to say here that I'm hoping to do with my children is give them a sense of choice. And I don't know when that's developmentally appropriate or age appropriate, but what I mean by that is not being super prescriptive and saying, for example, 
there is a God and this is what God is like. But I hope to introduce my children to different ideas about God and about divinity and about the afterlife and let them know that there's different people who believe all of these things and hopefully expose them to a variety of beliefs and ideas and help them sort of wade through that themselves. Again, I will be needing to do lots and lots of research on the best ways to do that and go about that because I'm I'm sure there's ways that that can be stressful or harmful for kids. One thing I do know is that kids really do benefit from a container, if you will, like certain boundaries or ideas about the world. I don't think it's obviously good to tell a young child like, who knows, you know, we'll see. And that's not what I'm planning to do either. But I hope that as my kids grow and as I research more and learn more, that's the hope that I have for an approach with my children is also kind of exposing them and letting them know what I think and believe and what Bentley thinks and believes and even, you know, what their grandparents think and believe and hopefully allowing them to make peace with the fact that there's multiple ways of looking at these things. We'll see. It sounds hard as I'm saying it, but I do think that that's possible and it's something that I, I really hope to cultivate for my own children. I forgot to make a disclaimer. Hmm, sorry. I want to make a disclaimer. (laughs) Parenting is tricky to talk about. Religion is tricky. Obviously, I think parenting is up there with tricky things to talk about. It's super, super high stakes. There's just nothing you want more as a parent than to raise your child right and give them the best chances at happiness and success and a joyful, rich life it's a big deal. It feels overwhelming. It feels just kind of crazy that we're allowed to do it. I'm always thinking there should be some application or some sort of vetting process to become a parent. But anyway, my disclaimer is that I'm figuring it out too. Oh, and I did want to mention, I was talking with some friends last night and we were talking about the podcast and I had A friend, Blake, shout out Blake, he said he really appreciates the way that my podcast is exploratory and that meant so much to me. I think that's exactly what I'm hoping for. When I ask for people to write in questions, these questions are a means of discussion, right? Kind of a springboard to conversation, not questions that I think in any way, shape or form I have the best answers to. I'm just sharing where I'm at and kind of what I'm thinking about around all of this and nobody come for me, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know why I'm always nervous about that. It's not that I'm scared of people coming for me or disagreeing with me. It's more that I want it to be super clear how self-aware I am that I'm just figuring this out as well. Okay, here is another question along those lines. This person says, I feel like so much of my parents' choices in raising me were dictated by the church's stance. How are you raising your kids without religion and without the same simple answers the church gives us? I wanted to respond to this question because I think, again, when my children are a certain age, I want to get better at or good at letting them know that I don't always know the answers. And I was kind of mentioning that a little bit before, but essentially 
not needing to know everything. I just don't think that that's a prerequisite of parenthood. I hope when they start asking those bigger questions as they get older that I'm able to say, you know, I don't know for sure. But again, here are some thoughts and ideas and here's what I hope for and just not needing to have these simple prepackaged answers because while those might be initially comforting or while it is obviously nice to have these answers that we can point to and these authority figures like the prophets and apostles that we can say, well, you know, this person said this or in the scriptures it says this, so therefore it's true. That can feel really comforting, but I think it's a good practice to learn how to introduce more nuance and more, I guess, introduce a larger picture of what's possible. I hope that I can find ways to pass that along to my kids. Next question, how to teach morality slash ethics, reverence for serious things, and self-discipline without organized religion? I do think that the church has a certain magic to it when it comes to raising kids. When I think of my upbringing in the church, not the doctrine, I'm not talking about the doctrine, but culturally, I do actually think there's a lot of things I benefited from, from being in the church. For example, this person talks about self-discipline. And I think growing up in a close-knit community where you're interacting with people at church, you learn those things maybe more quickly or maybe in a different way than just attending school or whatever. But I do not think that those things are monopolized by the church. I know that they're not. I do feel like in Utah, it maybe takes a little more work and effort to bring your kids to spaces where those things are happening, but I do know that it can be done. One example I'm thinking of around this, I was talking with Jacqueline and she was saying her husband, Zach, was talking about how much he loved his young men's leaders growing up because they were these figures outside of his parents who really cared about him, who were invested in him, who loved him and cared for him. And he was saying what a loss that feels like to not have his children have that. But he and Jacqueline were discussing this and they had an idea to have like a little coordination amongst their siblings so that their kids, aunts and uncles would be involved in their lives in similar ways. So they were going to coordinate like activities and phone calls and different ways to help aunts and uncles be involved in their kids' lives and kind of fill that gap. And I thought that was totally genius and such a nice way to do that. I also think about how it's nice growing up in the church. You learn how to speak with adults who are not your own parents or your teacher. And I think there's other ways to facilitate that. Like Bentley and I have talked about doing kid swaps with uh, parents that we trust really well, maybe doing like dinner once a month where their kids come to dinner at our house, our kids go to dinner at their house, and they just get to talk and interact with adults in a way that they might not be doing otherwise. So I think there's ways that all of those things can be taught and implemented and it's not quite as convenient maybe as having it all packaged in the church, but I think that you can get really creative and think about what benefited you growing up in the church, what things do you want to take away, and just find ways to make that happen for your kids. Okay, I really love this next question. 
This person says, I'm grateful that since leaving the church, now I have some time to really think about whether or not I want to be a mom. I struggle with mental health and being a mom right now is not the right choice for me, but maybe in a few years it will be. It feels nice to have a choice. Go you. What a beautiful understanding of yourself. I think it's really brave and really thoughtful that you are taking inventory and realize that you're not ready to be a mom right now. And I think it's so true what you said, where so many women in the church really feel like they have to be a mom and they oftentimes feel like they have to do that young, maybe sooner than they really want to, maybe at the expense of a lot of other life hopes and dreams that they have. I really mourn for those women. I have a different experience and I've mentioned this before, but because of my infertility, the timing with my babies has been really great for me. But I know that a lot of women, men and women, find themselves as parents sooner than they would be otherwise, and then they leave the church. And that can come with a lot of regret. And you can still love your children deeply and be phenomenal parents and have some regret that you had your kids maybe sooner than you would have otherwise. And I really honor those people and that experience. I think that's super difficult. Stepping away from the church does make you, as I mentioned with my infertility journey, it makes you really question the intense focus that the church puts on parenthood because parenthood may not always be the right choice for people. And it certainly is not the choice if it doesn't feel right. Like you shouldn't become a parent just because your religion is telling you to. I don't think that serves you or your kids. Someone else asked a similar question. They said, I grew up always thinking the only thing I was going to do with my life was be a mom. And I even structured my career goals around that. Now that I'm out, I question if I even want kids or if that was just what I was told to want, but also wonder if not wanting kids is just a form of rebellion. Advice? Question mark. Wow. I relate so deeply to this. I've talked with so many of my female friends about how difficult it even is to tell if you even have a choice, just in the way this person described so perfectly. I don't even know how much of me wanting to be a mom was actually my choice, even after stepping away from the church, because it was so deeply ingrained and because I had built my whole life around an idea that I would become a mom. And it was just always kind of in the back of my mind, right? And I talk to Bentley about this all the time. I'm like, you grew up being essentially asked, like, what's your dream? And I grew up thinking my dream needs to be to be a mom. And so Bentley spent his whole life pursuing things that he wanted to ultimately make his career. And I always had this caveat on everything I did on my schooling, on my career choices, that eventually I would be a mom. And it really changes how you live your life. It's such a hard thing to unpack. And there's so many layers to it because I do think it can happen. This person says... I wonder if not wanting kids is just a form of rebellion because I was talking to another friend about this and we were talking about how there is also sometimes this sense of just being like, well, I don't want kids at all because I was taught my whole life to be a mom, be a mom, be a mom. But maybe you actually deep down do want kids, but it's hard to separate 
if you actually want kids from being told your whole life that you should want kids and that your greatest purpose is to have kids. I'm thinking about something Maddie said in my episode with her, Maddie Murphy, where she said, what would you do if no one was going to praise you or be disappointed in you? And I know that can even be difficult on a personal level to unpack, but I would just say really try your best to get in tune with what you want separate from anything or anyone else. And that hopefully will be a way to kind of get closer to the answer of if you do want kids or not. You also can have kids in a different way than has been modeled to you or that has been taught to you. For me, I looked around before I became a mom and I kind of, this was more while I was pregnant, but I kind of paid attention to what other parents were doing, not in a judgmental way, but just to see how parents were parenting and, you know, if they left their kids, if they went back to work, all these different choices you make as a parent and all those choices come with some cultural baggage, with some religious baggage. But I tried my best before I had my babies to look around and think about the kind of parent I wanted to be. And I knew for me that it was going to be super important that I go back to work, that that was going to be really helpful for my mental health. I knew it would be really helpful if we had um, childcare, paid childcare. I knew I wanted to do a date night every week as soon as we could get back doing that. And then once you have your kids, it was harder to actually do those things that I had planned to do because it's scary to leave your kids. It can feel guilt-ridden and shame-ridden to do those things. But I'm glad I've stuck with those things that I knew would be best for me and for my family and have just tried my best to do it my own way. And I'm saying that because that might help with a decision to have kids or not. You don't have to have kids in the same way that the people around you are. So when you're considering if you want kids or not, just remember you don't have to have kids and then act the same way people are around you with their kids. Like there's tons of different ways to do it and raise healthy children and have a healthy family. I love being a mom so much and it's a really important part of who I feel like I am. But similar to what I was saying with the Mormonism stuff, it's it's a part of me. It's a piece of me. It's not all of me. I really am not someone who identifies first and foremost with being a mom. Again, I love it. And I think it's one of the greatest things ever, but it isn't the only thing. And I saw a lot of women around me really lean super, super hard into that identity piece of motherhood. And that always felt really stressful and all consuming to me in a way that didn't feel good. So I've tried my best to keep it a little bit delineated, I guess, because I knew that I didn't want to be consumed by motherhood. It has felt hard in some ways to find those boundaries, but it's definitely felt doable. And I feel like I'm in a really good place where I can embrace motherhood. I can embrace that really gigantic part of my life, but I also have all these other pieces of me that I get to cultivate and focus on. It's what's made it, I think, a really good experience for me because I've really prioritized keeping those other pieces and parts of myself alive. 
All right. Going back a little bit to the how to teach your kids stuff. Someone asked, how do you think you'll handle them, your kids, drinking, smoking as teenagers, or how do you think you will handle them having sex as teenagers? These two questions were actually the ones that made me want to panic research stuff. I was going to research things like, okay, how to, just the basics, how to teach your kids about sex. When's, when should you talk about sex? Should you teach abstinence only? Does teaching abstinence only in the home lead to abstinence or not? All that type of stuff. And I didn't do that because my girls are one. <laughs> so I know I have plenty of time, but I'm excited to research the best way to go about all of these things. You know, it is crazy reflecting on this. The church has it all there for you. There's values and standards that are very clear cut that are being taught not only by you to your children, but being taught by other adults in their life. And not only that, but then they're attending church where their peers that they're surrounded by are also not really necessarily, but are also at least learning these same standards and values. So you also have the sort of groupthink element where, you know, if your kid's going to church and is friends with people at church, then you're maybe assuming that they're not drinking or having sex because they're going to church, whatever. That's a really big thing to step away from. That's a huge responsibility of taking a lot of that back, of having to figure out what to teach them at all and not having all of those same support structures built in around the values and standards that you uh, settle on, I guess. So I do think that that is something that's hard and scary and super, super valid. But again, I just think it's possible. That leads me to talking about so many submissions I got that were so inspiring to me about people saying, once I became a parent, that is when I knew I had to leave the church because having children gave me the courage to step away because I wanted what was best for my kids. And even though there are good things in the church, there were so many things that I was so afraid were harming them that it was worth it to step away and explore the unknown so that I could essentially protect them from the harmful traumatic messages that the church teaches. Let me read one of those. That was really sweet. Once my daughter was in primary, I had my shelf break. One Sunday, she came home and told me two girls couldn't get married in the temple, and she was so sad because she wanted to marry her best friend, a girl. We never went back after that. That makes me really emotional because kids are so good deep in their core, they're just good. And they can recognize when something feels off and that this young girl could sense that two girls not being allowed to get married is sad and just wanting to marry her best friend is so sweet to me. And it's so sweet to me that that daughter is what gave her mother the courage to step away from something that was offering her mom a lot of safety and a lot of structure, but she knew that it wasn't worth ultimately the cost. Here is another one of those submissions. I stayed in the church while I knew it was harming me because I thought I had to raise my kids in the church. Seeing how it was hurting them gave me the courage to leave. We can raise kids with good values out of the church. My kids are happier and better humans out of the church than in. I love that so much. Okay, one more of those. When I had my daughter, I couldn't stop seeing all the ways the church might hurt her. Purity culture, worthiness interviews, only seeing men in positions of power, pressure to make big life choices young, homophobia, 
motherhood gave me the courage to question and leave the church. Full body chills, so proud of parents who are willing to do that for their children and recognize that for them and for their families and for their kids, it was an not an easier choice to step away, but the better choice to step away. And I wanted to share those submissions because I think it's nice to hear from other people whose kids are older, obviously, than mine, that they have experiences with stepping away and being able to navigate it and feeling like it's served not only them, but their whole family. Another thing I think about when I think about that fear that is really prevalent and that still pops up for me sometimes around what am I going to teach my kids without this framework of Mormonism is just thinking about all the billions of humans in the world who were not raised with Mormonism, but who are wonderful, amazing, good, kind people. Just remembering that, of course, Mormonism does not have a monopoly on teaching goodness and love and service and all the good principles that we want to teach our children, those things are not just in Mormonism. And duh, that might sound so, so obvious because it is, but I think we sometimes forget that. We are really attached to Mormonism, or at least I've been recognizing how attached I am to Mormonism because Mormonism was my upbringing. And even though I can recognize the ways in which it was harmful for me, I also grew up Mormon. It's made me who I am and I like who I am. And it's difficult to imagine raising kids outside of something that was so pivotal to my own childhood. Even though I know it's a good thing, it also still feels like a hard thing. So I think our attachment to these things really makes a lot of sense. And that fear makes a lot of sense because we have been taught our whole lives to fear what leaving the church will do to our families and to children particularly. And I think it's important to recognize that and be able to work on speaking back to that fear and understanding that it is irrational, I think, in a huge way, but also valid because it's what we know. It's what we've been told since we were children. I'm going to take a slight little detour, but it's still very much related I saw something being shared from General Conference that I thought was worth mentioning and my sharing my reaction to. It says, a parent's love, so an apostle said this, a parent's love for a child is one of the strongest forces in the universe. It's one of the few things on this earth that can truly be eternal. This is the kind of messaging that would have really sent me spiraling when I was struggling to become a mom, when I was going through infertility. And looking at it now, it's not even that I necessarily disagree with what's being said. I do think that the love I have for my girls, for my children, the love between a parent and child is so special and it is unique, but it's not better or more unique, I guess, than all the other different sorts of love that we can experience and feel. And I just really push back against that rhetoric that parenthood is the ultimate fulfillment because I don't think that's the case for everyone. And it can be the case for a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be for everyone. 
that messaging is difficult to deconstruct. I think it's really big in the church. I think it's also shared a lot in society. While being a mother is something that fulfills me and enriches me, as I've said many a time, it isn't the end-all be-all. And I just want to share that to anyone who's listening who maybe feels less than or feels shame or guilt for just knowing that they don't want to have kids. That's so valid. And you're not missing out on this love that you can't experience anywhere else. It can be a unique love between parent and child, but there's all different kinds of unique love. And a lot of those types of love I won't experience, right? Because they're different. I just don't feel like there's any value in this hierarchy around like the types of love that we can feel as human beings. Woo. What a topic. I feel like that was just the tip of the iceberg. I am excited to continue talking about parenthood and motherhood, and I have some women in mind that I'm hoping to bring on to talk about motherhood, and there's just a lot to say and a huge overlap with all the religion stuff. So stay tuned for more of that. If you're here, if you're listening, I love you for it. Please follow me over on Girls Camp Podcast on Instagram. I also have a TikTok where I am doing all the trends, doing the things they say you got to do to get exposure. So if you want to watch me try that, you're welcome to join over on TikTok. My handle is just Haley Rawl on TikTok. If you've left a review, if you've written me a DM, it means the absolute world to me. I say it all the time, but I really, really mean it. Thanks again for being here. Have an absolutely wonderful week. Until next time, bye. G-I-